This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Jerry Murata. Following on the heels of his older brother Rick, Jerry jumped right into the music scene at a very young age, finishing high school a year early and hitting the road with a band with a top 40 hit. For the next three decades, Jerry divided his time between recording and touring with Peter Gabriel, Daryl Hall and John Oates, Tears for Fears, Indigo Girls, Paul McCartney, Sarah McLaughlin, John Mayer, and countless others. Jerry is currently dividing his time between recording and touring and managing two studios, Dreamland and Jersville. When not doing this, Jerry is spreading his time between the Murata Brothers Band with Rick, The Fragile Fate with Rupert Grunall from The Fix, Flav Martin, The Security Project with Trey Gunn, Reelin' in the Years, and Annie and the Hedonists. He also has a brand new recording out called The Bucket List with Phil Keggy and Tony Levin. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. So here's a new thing that we're doing. I'm calling it feedback. It gives us a chance to read some of the comments from listeners. Uh, a lot of these are about the podcast. This one is about one of our guests, and I'm happy to share it. It's from our YouTube page. It's from a listener named Rusty Rupert, and he's writing about Al Wilson. Al Wilson is without a doubt one of the best humans and drummers I've ever met. Anybody would be incredibly lucky to have him as a friend and musical collaborator. I love that. I had a chance to share that with Al. Al was uh, early on in the podcast, and you can find all the archived episodes on our website, but we are slowly populating our YouTube channel with the audio and some video of all our episodes. If you use the hashtag WorkingDrummer, we'll include you on Instagram and our stories. If you want to support what Zach and I are doing here at the Working Drummer Podcast, there's a couple ways that you can do that. On the homepage of our website, workingdrummer.net, you can find a button for PayPal. There's also a button that is a link to our Patreon page. Patreon is an easy and convenient way to support the podcast on a regular basis. Donations start at a dollar and you have access to the bonus material that we're providing on a monthly basis from past guests. As always, any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. So here it is. I'm honored to bring you my conversation with Jerry Murata. Are you in Woodstock right now? I am. I have my studio here at my home, which is Jairsville, and then I have a studio called uh, Dreamland. Right. Which is a big residential recording studio, you know, like an old school residential recording studio that I took over. Um, I took over. 
I don't know how long ago, maybe 10 years ago, from a friend of mine who, who built it and owns it and then got that up when the music industry collapsed. And he shut it down for, for years, seven years. And then uh, I took I, I kind of convinced him to let me take the place over. Were you you were already living in in Woodstock, and you're like, hey, I've been in Woodstock since 1986. Okay, yeah, I moved up here then. Gotcha. And I started coming up here in 1975 when I auditioned for and joined a band called Orleans. Yes, they were based in Woodstock. Okay, so that was. Um, that was I started coming up here then I was about 18 or 19 but I had just moved into Manhattan and I certainly did not want to live in the country because I grew up in Westchester County which is a suburb it's the suburbs of New York okay but to me you know that was like that was like being in the country I wanted to live in uh, I wanted to live in Manhattan so mm -hmm. I, I got in an apartment in Manhattan and then got the job with Orleans so I was I was kind of commuting. Um, I didn't want to be up here in that in, at that time, but by around '86, I decided to move up to Woodstock full time. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, I had a chance to listen to your interview that Nick Ruffini, our friend at Drummers Resource, did a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I've had an opportunity to interview some people that he's interviewed. He's been a, a, a good supporter of our podcast, and we've done some mutual shows together. Mm -hmm. some, some collective roundtables between uh, Zach Albetta, my co-host, and Nick and I. But anyways, so uh, I I try and check out what he's covered and uh, give people a little bit of a preview of what's been done, but also encourage our listeners to go over and check out what Nick does there. Uh, episode 317 is his interview with you. And uh -huh. he covers a lot of stuff, great stuff as far as your history. So I know that um, you were very young when you went out on tour. Uh, there was a group from like 73 to 75, Arthur Hurley and Gottlieb. Is that right? Uh -huh. That was the band that was on Columbia Records, and they had like a top 40 single. Um, my brother, uh, Rick, had done their record. And then uh, they, when they asked him if he would go out on tour with them, he didn't want to do that because he was too busy doing sessions in New York. And so he recommended his little brother. I was, <laughs> it was, uh, I think it was 73. I was the summer. I went to summer school after my, after 11th grade in high school to, I graduated a year early. Yeah. Which I always say any, any idiot can do. It had nothing to do with being smart. Just it had to do with being motivated and, and wanting to, <laughs> get out there, you know, and I wasn't going to college. I was going to, I knew what I was going to do. So I got that opportunity, but it was a, about a week before summer school was over. So I was fortunate enough to have really great teachers, two of them. And uh, they let me take my final exams on the road with me. That's awesome. Yeah. That's how, uh, that's, that was how my high school career ended was, I took my final exams on the road, and and uh, and and then uh, I did the, I did the tests and turned them in, and I think I have a diploma. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sixty. I don't know if it matters at this point. Nobody's ever asked me to see my diploma, but I'm pretty sure I have one somewhere. Peter didn't ask for your diploma. 
before you he joined the band? I was a high school, you know, if I was a high school graduate, he did not. <laughs> and that was a great experience, you know, with the Arthur Hurley. I'm still very good friends with Jeff Arthur, the Arthur of Arthur Hurley Gottlieb. We're, we're very close. I mean, we've main, we've remained close. I mean, it's, it's, what is it? It's 40, like 45 years or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that was awesome. That was a great experience. That's amazing. First gig we did was we flew to Miami where I had never been before. And, and this is in 73 and we opened, we opened a show for Richie Havens, who at the time was huge, you know, having been in, you know, a big part of Woodstock and that whole folk scene. So we opened a show for Richie. That was just, that was just awesome. Awesome. I can't imagine, man. And you were 18? Uh, no, I think I was 17. Oh my gosh. I was either 16 or 17, something like that. That's insane. Yeah. And I know that your your brother brought home some drums and, and, you know, when he wasn't playing, you were upstairs playing and yeah, exactly. Andy Newmark was in the neighborhood and, uh, yep. so there was a lot of, a lot of that stuff going on. He was a teenager. I mean, he would, you know, back then I was like 10 and, uh, my brother's about eight, eight or nine years older than me. Andy's probably somewhere in that range, uh, and Andy was a you know was a guy who lived is local guy. We we've remained friends. You know, my brother and Andy were were very close. And um, I mean, I was like Rick's little brother back then. So you know, how close can you get to a ten year old? But um, <laughs> but I've you know I've remained friends with Andy very very close actually family. My my parents were uh, were quite fond of Andy and like sort of took him in and I think Andy's parents died in when he was pretty young, you know, when he was still a teenager maybe. And my, my parents kind of adopted him, you know, uh, and remained very close with him until they, they, they passed away. Rick mentioned something about that as well. When I spoke to him back in April, that's, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Are you friends? Do you know Harry McCarthy as well? Do I know Harry McCarthy? Yeah, that's hysterical. I've known Harry since <laughs> I have pictures of Harry, probably when he was four. Okay, so, I mean Harry, uh, Harry, the McCarthys, and my family—we were like, you know, the uh, close to family as you can get. You know, um, they, we lived on uh, right around the corner from each other, two, like three houses away. Okay. I know that he and your brother Rick were close. I, I wasn't sure just because of the age gap. If, if oh no, we're, I'm closer. Oh, I mean, excellent. Okay, Harry and I. Well, you know, I don't know what he would say now, but <laughs> but Harry, you know, Harry and I were we're just a couple of years apart in age. My bro, my old, my brother Rick was, you know, like I said, he's like he's eight nine years older than us, and uh, but Harry, I, I mean, we. I mean, he had, there are six kids in the McCarthy family. And his sister Mary was in my grade, exactly. His brother Justin was like two years ahead. Um, Kathleen was a couple of years behind Gerard. I mean, there's a, they're a big family, McCarthy, Irish Catholic, you know. Yeah. No birth control, just, you know, <laughs> turn, turn those kids out. 
And and so yeah, I mean I've known Harry since we were, you know, we were he played. We had a band called the Prodigies that we we play. We used to practice up in my parents' attic. I don't even know how I must. We must have been like maybe I was thirteen or fourteen. And Harry's sister Mary was a singer, and Harry played drums on cardboard boxes because he nab drums. Um, and I played guitar. And uh, there was another girl, I think Marguerite Massey. I think she was one of the other. It was like, it, it was a, a little folk group. <laughs> Harry was the drummer. That's amazing. Yeah. And I, I think he played on like cardboard boxes. So, so those listeners, I mean, I had a chance to interview, well, I've gotten to know Harry over the last couple of years. He runs Drum Paradise here in Nashville. Yeah. And uh, through him, he's been a, a big help in the growth of the podcast in the last year. We did a great roundtable for our 200th episode. Uh, I did a nice little uh, drum tech uh, roundtable with he and John Hall. And uh, then he connected me with Rick and then uh, through Rick to you. So it's yeah. been awesome. And uh, it's just fun to make those connections. Yeah, sure. Before we get away from the history, I, you know, I want to f- ask about Orleans. I'm embarrassed to say I did not know that was you on that record. Uh, well, still the one was the, that hit. That right. Well, I was not the original drummer. Yeah. And uh, because they were a band, um, they were bands for a few, at least a few years before I joined them. I mean, they had a song "Dance with Me." They had a hit with "Dance with Me" mm-hmm. before I joined them, and then, um, and then I and they had a drum, a phenomenal drummer, Wells Kelly. Uh, sadly, you can't interview him because he died many, many years ago, maybe in the in the the early eighties. Wow! Uh, and uh, but he was a big influence on me and a great drummer, incredible, and totally unusual style kind of a backward style of playing i learned a lot from him i really did and uh so they i they added me because wells played other instruments he played keyboards and guitar and sang and he wanted to do more than just play drums so and ironically this the amazing thing is this is i was about 18 i think or 19 when i auditioned for orleans and i got the job they were my absolute number one favorite band on the planet at that time. So to get to get a, a, you know an opportunity to play in that band was it was it's like being asked to be in the Beatles. That's literally. amazing. Yeah. In fact, if the Beatles had asked me at that very same time, I for sure would have chosen Orleans over the Beatles. <laughs> they were they were my favorite band. Uh, literally, they were one. They were. Uh, the, the, they were an amazing band back back then. Yeah, you know the Orleans that I fell in love with was a bit. The bit they made a record down in Muscle Shoals with Barry Beckett and Roger Hawkins, I think. Okay, and who produced it? And I mean, it's really not. They they ironically it, the the sort of the demise of of the downfall of Orleans was when they got signed to a major label, went out to California to make a record. And, you know, it's a classic story. It's a classic story. They, you know, they, the, the, you know, Electra, the producer, they, they just, they really, they changed the, 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 the way Orleans, they changed what Orleans was all about. And, and uh, they had a hit, they had a couple of hits, but 
but it kind of hurt them as, as in in the long run as having the kind of the kind of respect. I mean, we we used to do. I don't know. Are you familiar with Little Feet? Yes. Yeah. Well, we it was much more like Little Feet. I oh, mean, cool. We used to do shows with Little Feet because we had the same manager, and it would be like a, a very friendly fucking slugfest as to like if in di- different markets one band would headline the other one open and um whoever opened and like if little feet opened i mean they were unbelievable they yeah. were great oh yeah when we age and we would just kick their asses and then if we opened you know they'd get we'd get them all fired up and they'd they'd get on stage and kick our asses <laughs> and i mean when i say kick our asses I mean, we both bands played were phenomenal, but that was more that was more the Orleans that I fell in love with. Gotcha. And I went to see them play a number of times at Max's Kansas City in in New York. They they played clubs, and uh, they were just they were just an awesome, awesome, very funky. Oh yeah, you know. And at some point. You know, if you you should go back, try to dig back into that that first ABC record. Um, you know, the the songs were mostly written around a guitar groove, like a guitar lick. Like John Hall, he there's there's a song he wrote called Half Moon that Janis Joplin recorded and had a hit with. And and it, it's if you ever you know dig it up, it's a guitar riff. That's that's what the song is. It's a guitar riff. And uh, John and his wife, Johanna, they wrote songs like that. And um, that, that was really what the, the band. And I mean, look, when I joined them, I was happy. They were great. But they, they, every, their whole thing shifted slightly to being more sort of M.O.R. pop, you know. OK. So. Well, was there something like profound about your playing that was affected during this time? profound as far as just the growth i mean i mean so much growth happens in that time period of our life and just being thrust i was in. still i was physically still growing i was a growing boy. i know i know and your brain yeah. was still growing it, it, my brain was was still growing <laughs> although the, once i joined like the you know started when i joined a, a touring rock band with an album and uh started touring i think i did a little little damage to the brain, the old brain. <laughs> yep. Got, I left the, you know, I, I, I left the family fold, you know, and uh, so I was out on my own. I didn't have to really worry about coming home and have my, my parents see me high. Yeah. Shall we say? So, this, so this was pre Nancy Reagan. So, you know, right. We didn't know to say no. That's exactly right. Didn't know to just say no. But I mean, just being there, watching Richie play, and learning from the drummer that was in oh. Orleans. I mean, that must have been just like it felt like there was probably a, a lot of growth. Oh well, my brother. I mean, right. First of all, you know he'd be practicing in the house, and he got really good fast. But really, the the you know the education big time was, and I'm sure my brother talked about this. My brother's career was um, really the person that really got my brother started 
was a guy named David Spinoza, guitar player. Yes. I'm sure he must have spoken quite a lot about Spinoza because Dave Spinoza was and still is, you know, one of one of the greatest guitar players on the planet. And and David was younger. I mean, I think at 17 or 18, David, you know, and he'll, you know, you should talk to him sometime. He's got great, a great story, but he was playing like a telly or a strat. And this is back, this is back when session guys were playing hollow body guitars and were mostly jazz guys, you know? Mm-hmm. So Dave said he, he, he ended up being like, the Hendrix, the ro- the new young rock kind of guy, but Dave also his chops were off the hook. But anyway, these guys were doing sessions morning, noon, and night, jingles, record dates, and the, what they would do to like for fun was uh, they had they had a band called the Spinoza Mob. It was my brother and Dave, uh, maybe Stu Woods, bass player, and. Uh, I, you know, uh, various keyboard players, you know, um, I'm trying to remember. It was the Pat Rebelo. There was a couple of different guys. Um, and they were all session players. That's what they did. They played on records, jingles and records day in and day out. So this was an opportunity for them to really air it out. Mm-hmm. Now I would go, I, I got a chance to go and see them play a couple times. And that was like, that was like freaking you know, school. That was school. Gotcha. And Spinoza, you know, I'm not a, I didn't study, nor did my brother. So to be honest with you, I'm, I don't really listen to drummers, you know, as much as I listen to records and bands, you know, sounds, mm-hmm. not particularly, you know, tr- who the drummer is and their, their chops and stuff. My, and my brother's probably the same. I mean, we just listened to, you know, I, I learned to play the drums by playing along to like James Brown records, JJ Jackson, Sam and Dave, Carla Thomas, all Motown or Stax or Memphis. And when I was a kid, like, you know, 12 or 14, if it wasn't black, forget about it. It wasn't good. It just, it wasn't good. I was like a real snob, an R and B snob. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't be bothered with rock and Led Zeppelin and Dylan. And, you know, I, I just wasn't listening to that shit. Um, <laughs> I think Steve Winwood, Steve Winwood, you know, um, there was a couple of things, people like that, that, you know, give me some of love. And um, Spencer Davis, I think, was the band. But, you know, that's that because it sounded like R&B. Right. But, uh, you know, going out and hearing my brother play, when I was really a kid, 13, 14, 15, with the Spinoza Mob, it was it was just absolutely awesome. That's awesome. really cool. That that sounds like that prepared you for what was uh, what was coming in the, in the you know, when well, you were 16. Well, like, how am I ever going to play that good? You know, how am I ever going to play with anybody that good? I mean, it really was like, Jesus, I mean, am I ever going to, you know, going to find people to play with that are as good as, as these guys are. That's amazing. Yeah. It's awesome. I want to kind of put a pause on the, on the, uh, on the history of it, but I know that you ended up joining Peter Gabriel in 77. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. Um, and I want to get to that, but 
because I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about this brand new record that you've done uh, with Phil Keggy and Tony Levin. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Bucket List. Um, that's something kind of new, and uh, I've been listening to it this week. My 14-year-old plays guitar, and so when we carpool, we've been listening to that together. And no, just does he like it? Yeah, well, he is, as much as he speaks to me, it sounds like he does. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> no, he's he's a quiet he's a quiet dude sometimes, but yeah, he he tends to be that guy that probably just listens to everything that his dad says as, as I yammer on about this band, that band, this guitar player, that guitar player, yeah. and just like okay, if I just sit here and be quiet, maybe my dad will eventually shut up. And then I see what he's really listening to on Spotify. And sometimes it's stuff that I talk about, but I digress. Um, I've been enjoying it. And I think one of the things that I love so much about it is the sounds that you guys get. But can you talk about this record, maybe uh, its inception, maybe the production, how it came about? Absolutely. That's easy. Well, okay, so Phil and Tony Levin and I got together here at my house in my studio, Jairsville. At the, at the, uh, we have a very close friend named Paul Grimsland, and he's close friends with the three of us. And it was kind of his bucket list was to get the three of us in a room together. So we did that for three days about 13 years ago, maybe more. Wow. And we jammed for three days, and we had all these you know, these funky ideas. And then it just sat literally for years. It just sat there. And, uh, cause we were all busy, you know, we we're just busy. And eventually a couple of years ago, I want to say maybe two or three, uh, Phil decided he had some free time. He was going to spend some time working on that record, which he did. And so, I mean, Phil really, took well, our original jams and he turned them into into pieces of music, serious pieces of music. It's it's really, it was really a big, big thing on Phil. Um, <clears throat> you know, we were jamming. You know what happens when you're jamming. You're, 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 play, you're playing repetitive, you know, a riff repetitively. And that's what jamming is all about. Sure. So, um, and then little by little, Phil cobbled it together. To, he, he would get songs to a certain point and then he would pass them back to Tony and I and then we would do our thing to them and then went back and forth like that and uh, and then finally it was done and it came out and it turned out amazing and I have to I have to credit someone we'll, we'll talk about later he's a bandmate of mine in a, in a project called The Security Project the guitar player Michael Kotze is also a mixing engineer and he has a studio in Seattle. And he mixed that record. And he made that record sound the way, way it's. I mean, you know, obviously it, we recorded it. And it was well recorded. But he, he, he's a master. He's a master. And um, I, everything I do now, I just have him do it. I just give it, hand it over to him and let him mix. You know, he mixed my record that I did, Soul Redemption record with Flav Martin. He mixed, um, he's mixing a, a record I'm producing right now of a woman named Sarah Parada. We're in the middle of that. Um, and then he's done all the security project records. So, so anyway, um, 
so then that happened, and eventually we somehow cleared out about a week or ten days of time to do three or four shows. And that was back at the end of February, beginning of March. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what we did. And we had an awesome time. Um, we added a guitar player who was a friend of Phil's. Um, Michael, I can't remember his last name right now. It escapes me. Um, is he a Nashville guy? Yeah, he yeah. is. Yeah, I remember reading that, and I don't. I didn't write his name down, but yeah, Italian name, Mike. Mike, uh, some you know, I can't remember, but we can. Uh, I'm sorry, um, silly, but um, uh, I'll remember his name. Gotcha. But he, he ended up. He and Phil have known each other since childhood. He lives in Nashville. Um, and he he jumped in, and so we went out as a quartet because. Phil couldn't cover all the guitar stuff. And we had a great time playing three or four shows. Yeah, there's like some cool video of it. Uh, but I have to say that I th- the recording is just a joy to listen to, the, the sounds that are there. And uh, it must it must be some of the mixing that you're talking about that makes it sound stuff that just jumps out and just sounds really great. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Well, we recorded it well. Yeah. I have a really good studio in my house. I have great, great, uh, I have great stuff here. Um, but, and uh, and then Kotze just did an awesome job mixing it. In Dreamland Studios, there's like, do you still have that big umbrella that's over the drums? And if so, I, what is that? It's a, it's an umbrella. It's an umbrella. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's just basically, it's an umbrella, and uh, yeah, we have that because you know, Dreamland is a church, and uh, you know, sometimes what we really want to do is is you know minimize the the uh, the sound the the sound the bleed. Gotcha. So that's what we do. I don't know if it's some sort of satellite channeling ancient alien something or or what it was but no just you know i just went on like amazon or something they're just like patio you know patio umbrellas gotcha or if the roof had a leak uh, no i i see every once in a while you know somebody talking about you know different recording techniques as people are expanding their recording in their own home and how to get different sounds and how to cover drums with minimal miking and there's been umbrellas and different types of techniques there and so when i saw that i thought is that more of that i know you have the space it's a dedicated space to uh recording it's not a home studio it's a real studio um so that's what that's what made me ask that question you mean dreamland yes yeah, Dreamland is a is a is a a, a badass residential old school recording studio. Big, big, you know, the church was built in the late eighteen hundreds, but you know we have a big boy console, an API, phenomenal API. We have uh, ridiculous gear. Two, we have which I just I just we have a Studer eight eight an eight twenty. 24 track uh, two inch machine. We have an Atari MTR 90 that was sitting in a room, like basically gathering dust for years. 
And I went and found a um, 16-track head stack for that. And we, we slapped that on there. Now we have those two machines um, linked. So we have the MTR90 with 2-inch 16, 16-track 16 heads. And then the Studer was 24-track heads. And then they're all synced up to Pro Tools, so we can run it all at the same time. Uh, there were like three words you said there that I recognized. Um, I'm getting better at understanding studio, and I, I know there's listeners that are following every word of that, and, and it's probably amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I have discovered you cannot be left behind with the recording technology. I mean, it's just so essential to understand this and not just... You know, well, I'm a drummer. This is what I do. Or I just play guitar or I just yeah, engineer. But I am like that. I yeah. mean, yeah. I know I know the words, <laughs> but I don't ask me to run any of it. <laughs> I, I used to run Pro Tools. And then and then I did a lot of work recording with when I had ADATs back in the age of ADATs um, in the 90s. And then and then I, I, I used to run Pro Tools. But to be honest with you, it's distracting. You know, I don't really want to do that. I just want to, I want to have an engineer, a guy who, that's what he wants to do is engineer. Um, and, and, uh, that's how he makes his living. And, you know, I mean, I make less money because of that, but you know, I, there's so many people out there that do everything. Yeah. And I'm not into that, even if I could. And in some instances I can, but you know, I, I, I don't want to do that. I, I'd rather make less money and have a guy in there who's an engineer and that's what he wants to do. That's his, that's his love. And, uh, that's how he feeds his family. I, um, that, that's just the way I am. Yeah. Yeah. I, the only thing I will say is that as budgets have gotten smaller and smaller, one thing that I do more and more is play bass on stuff that I'm doing because, you know, Tony Levin is to me, I mean, he's the, he's the holy grail of bass playing. He's the, he's the guy. He's the, he's, he is what the is, God. What is it about his plan? I mean, I, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Well, but what? I will tell you that, but let me just finish what I was saying. And yeah. that is, you know, if I can't get Tony, I'm not Tony Levin, but I've been playing with him for so many years through osmosis. I have... I, I sort of I understand how he approaches and kind of you know what I'm, I'm never I never sound better than I do when I'm playing with Tony and and many many records we've done together but but Tony Tony is a freak in the sense that you know he's he could play in a symphony orchestra you know upright bass he's just classically trained he, you know he went to Eastman and graduated I mean. You, you know, it's not Berkeley. It's Eastman. You know, it's it's not a school to, to develop rock rock bass players. And um, and it's uh, he he just has he has a gift. He's gifted. Yeah. He, he, you know, that that's it. It's not even about being a bass player. He's gifted in his sense. He can play like Paul McCartney and he can also play not like Jocko, but. I've seen him do gigs reading, like uh, I saw him do a gig with a violinist named Michael Urbaniak back in the maybe the seventies, where his his bass player got sick and they were playing the Bottom Line in New York, and they hired Tony. They got Tony to come in 
to play the show with them, and he was just basically he had to read charts, and it was fusion, you know, it was fusion music, and and uh, that was remarkable. And he Tony can do that, but he's the most melodic. He doesn't play a wrong note. I mean, I know it sounds stupid, and it's a stupid statement to make, but I never really hear him make a mistake. And he he's just got an amazing sense, it, it, like. Let's leave it at this. It really resonates with me and my sensibility. I I hear music the same way he does. Gotcha. Yeah. It, it it you said I think in another interview that when Tony plays in all these different situations and different bands and different styles of music, it sounds like it's what he's done all his life. Sure. It's authentic. He's yeah. not fake. He's interesting, you know. You know, there's that whole thumb slapping thing, you know, like uh, the, the Larry Graham and then, you know, every bass player now, so many bass players do that sla- that thumb slapping thing, right? Mm-hmm. So Tony is so smart. Rather than do that and, and just end up sounding like everybody else that slaps, he did a thing where he, he created these things called funk fingers. And they're like drumsticks. That he cut down and he puts them on the ends of his two of his fingers on his right hand. Yeah. And so he he basically he slaps the bass like that, and it's kind of the same way, obviously, as with a piano. Like a piano hammer hits a string. You know, it's that it's that percussive. It's very similar to that. You know, it's you know it's a it, it's it's um you know it's exactly like that. It's like like a piano hammer hitting a piano string. I have some friends in town that that bought some of those and have them on hand. They they like to remind me, hey, if you ever need that, I've got this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I don't even know. I mean, I don't know how often Tony even gets asked to break out his funk fingers. It's <laughs> it's a pretty it's a pretty funky sound, but um, he has played them on on some Gabriel records and uh, and I'm sure others. But, uh, you know, Tony, he's like my musical, you know, soulmate. It's unfortunate we don't get to play much anymore together lately. Lately, we haven't gotten to play together as much as we used to. He's usually busy and he's away a lot because he lives very near Woodstock. Can you tell me about the Security Project? Yeah, absolutely. Security Project formed maybe six six years ago, something like that. Um, and it was based on the music of Peter Gabriel, mostly from the record, the Security Record, which is a record that I did with Peter. Yeah, one, one of the one of the many that Peter. Um, and it's music that. You know, after Peter did made the record so, his career changed pretty drastically because, you know, he had Sledgehammer, Big Time, Don't Give Up. He had these big pop hits. And that's what people, the you know, he was if he was selling out an arena or bigger, it wasn't because of the security record. It was because so. I mean, based on the security record, he might sell sell out a theater, a big theater, but which is what we would do when I toured with him. Um, it got bigger, and in some areas, it was 
it was bigger in other areas. It wasn't quite as big, but it was always thousands of people. But, you know, when, when So came out, you know, that was the biggest record in the world for probably a year. Sure. Um, but so we started doing this music um, and it was we had a singer who was in a Peter Gabriel tribute band called The Waiting Room, um, Josh Gleason. So that was our fir- the first year we did with Josh and he was excellent. Great. He had a wife and kids and a job, so it was very limiting to what we could do. So um, we had to find another singer. We found a guy in Liverpool, an English guy named Brian Cummins, uh, who's a big Gabriel fanatic and knows the material and sings like Peter. Sounds like Peter. So we did that for, I don't know, I don't know how long. I, I could see that was not going to last, his personality wasn't particularly melding with the rest of the band. He and I got along well, but we, we disagreed on a lot of things, but we were always, we always remained close friends. Gotcha. And then, so we got, so Brian was out and, you know, I had been thinking a lot about, um, what we could do to take it out of the Gabriel tribute sort of thing. And I was, I had been thinking, Maybe we should find would be great if we could find a female singer, and and Trey was thinking exactly the same thing at the same time. Trey As Trey a, Gunn from Trey Gunn, yeah, he had been in Crimson, but he's he plays war guitar in um, in the Security Project. So we did a show here in Woodstock, and a, a singer, a woman named Happy Rhodes, came to the show with her husband, and Trey and I had both worked with her. She has like 11 albums out and she's got a very unusual voice, four octave range. Actually, she sounds a lot like Kate Bush. And we asked her if she'd be interested in doing it. And she did. She, she joined the band and we, we worked up these songs and with a woman singing it. And she's awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It sounds great. She's awesome. Uh, Sadly, she is in a real different place in her life with a husband and, you know, she doesn't really want to go out and tour very much. So um, we really don't play very often, and which is unfortunate because we're, we, we can't really – we can't grow as a band unless we play more. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, we did a festival in Norway uh, in uh, the beginning of August. I don't know when we'll play again. I, I'm always looking forward to it. I suspect we're going to have to find a singer who's more anxious to play more um, and then still have Happy when Happy wants to do it. Yeah. Because um, it's all, I don't know if you've heard any of it, but I have, but yeah. It's awesome. She's she's great, and live she's great, and uh, yeah, we love her. I mean, I I would I would not want to replace her. She's always. I feel that way about all the guys and all the singers. I feel like any one of them would be great to get to come anytime. Come back and do these short tours with them. With with them, and and my other my other kind of thought about the security project is to go out and look for Peter Gabriel fans 
who, but are guy who are successful in their own right in other bands or uh, their own music. Like, like there's a band called The Six, and Cy Kernan is the lead singer. I I was always thinking, why don't we get, you know, people Sting? Let's see if Sting, well, you know, to do like a three week tour, um, performing music, the music of Peter Gabriel. You know, um, it doesn't have to be Sting, as famous as Sting, but. Um, for instance, I work with a guy named Anthony Rapp, who was one of the stars of the show Rent on Broadway. And and I go I do shows with him occasionally. And he's a huge Gabriel fan, and he's an actor and a singer, and he's great. He's a great singer and a great guy. I would love to do some shows with him. You know, and, and really not have a set lead singer, but have different people interpreting the the music of Gabriel. I think that would be very interesting. I, I think those those first four records, especially for Gabriel fans, they're so important. I mean, you wouldn't have so if it wasn't for those first few records. You're talking about his first four solo records. Yeah, yeah. The Scratch one, the the Melting Face one, Security. Right. And I love his first solo record with Salisbury Hill and Modern Love and Slow Burn. And we do songs off of that record. Oh, cool. We, we, we lay away from the, from Peter's hits because he's going to go out and tour and play those songs himself. Mm -hmm. So we're not really, we would, we would probably work a lot more if we did do those, do the hits, you know, because we could do bigger gigs. Um, because this whole tribute thing is like, it's totally exploded. It's crazy. And I have friends that have a band called, uh, that are, that play in a band called Brit Floyd. Pink Floyd band. We saw them. My my yeah. sons uh, are in a Floyd, and we saw them maybe two three months ago in Chattanooga. They were amazing. And how big was the venue? It was like an old theater. Um, gosh, it's hard to say. Maybe <laughs> seven eight hundred people. Yeah, but I mean, I've they play Red Rocks. It says seven thousand, eight thousand people. That's where I saw them on TV when I was out on the yeah. road, and then I I came home and I said, like, "We got to see this band." Yeah, they play the Beacon Theater in New York and sell it out. I mean, they 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 they're playing and they're out on the road all the time. Constantly. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I mean, in my house is all four of us are huge Gabriel fans. I mean, I remember seeing my wife before we were even da even dating at WOMAD, you know, and then we started to hang out, and now we've got two kids, and they're. I mean, they've got security on vinyl. My older son bought security on vinyl. They, we, we like those that era. I mean, we like, we adore the the older era. But I mean, it's definitely that period of time fascinates me. Well, the security record is is like it's a classic record that I'd say it's one of the top. I'd put it in the top ten records and and had a, a had a major effect on music making and and you know the way people made records it was it was it was groundbreaking yeah and we didn't time we weren't thinking it but but you know family in the fishing net and um lay your hands on me yeah, um amazing a san jacinto a wallflower um i think shock the monkey is that on on th that record um uh, what what else you know? But yeah. you know, when you think about when you think about um, lay your hands on me 
and family in the fishing net. I mean, it's not rock music. It's not rock. <laughs> it's our music. It's not rock. You know, the orchestration, the the, the treatment, the way it's being played is there. Those records are that, that record is awesome. But it's, it but it rocks, but it's still, you know, it still no, moves it you. Rocks. I'm just saying they're not typical rock songs. It's not like the Eagles, you know. It's not even like Genesis eventually at that time doing things like Turn It On, I Can't Dance. You know, the Genesis kind of went, went full-blown pop, you know. Right. And um, Peter's, that, that, that record was... Just, uh, I mean, that's a gr- it was groundbreaking. You know, like for the year or more after that record came out, every session I ever did, some low-level coffee-making guy in a recording studio, wherever I was, would approach me to see if, if I would consider staying after the session and talking to the guys at the studio, engineers and assistants, about how that record was made. I mean, literally, it was in every control room I, for like the, ne- the next year, year and a half. Everybody was, was just blown away by that record. There's and a, then that, Peter is just a, he's a brilliant, he's a genius. He, he just is the true definition of an artist in so many yeah. ways. And he did, you know, those songs were all, he didn't walk into the studio with, I don't think, a single song written, you know. But when he when he left the studio, he had ri- he had written, you know, we jammed a lot on on you know on different m- motifs, you know, and chord changes and ideas. Um, and then Peter was the one who ultimately like picked the, you know what the way the songs would go, and then he would eventually write lyrics to them, which is his strong suit. Um, and he has a tremendous, you know, he's stubborn which drives everybody crazy. Um, I mean, there's the famous story of Dan Lanois during So. After nine months of working on the record, he hadn't written any lyrics. He went into the studio one day, and Dan had a hammer and nails, and he nailed the studio door shut, and he said he wasn't going to let him out until he wrote some lyrics. That's great. Yeah, that's a, that's a, known, that's a known story. <laughs> and I think Peter flipped out. I don't think he liked that, because he doesn't like... Peter likes to be in control of things, you know? Yeah. But uh, anyway, I was very fortunate to work with Peter in that period, which, you know, many Gabriel fans uh, feel like that was his best, most creative time, was up up until so, um, but not necessarily including so. I've even talked to Peter about it. Like, after so, and then, then the next record, he kind of got, you know, he kind of got away from what what made him brilliant which technology overwhelmed him i mean um well, how did that conversation go what was his reaction he agreed he agreed it was wasn't the, quite the same as when we were the technology wasn't quite so advanced when you know we you know the four of us would get into a room and just we'd have to play we played just jammed and played i mean I'll give you an example. I don't know which record it was, but it was one of the records after So. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, was mixing the record. And he brought, Peter, would they bring in a, like a song with like 120 tracks? And then, and Chad would 
he would like trim it down to like 60 something tracks and he'd have the thing sounding awesome. And then Peter would come in and listen to it and he would say, he said, oh yeah, that's amazing. That's the best I've ever heard that song. Sounds incredible. That's great. And then Peter would leave, left, and the next day he came in with 32 more tracks, 12 hi-hat tracks. <laughs> and and I think the, what was happening was he had guys with in hoodies with 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 digital with pro tools rigs programmers he had a, i think he had a couple of them in different rooms at his studio and he handed stuff over to them and just let them do whatever you know get, let them do their thing and and then come back with all this additional stuff um that's where peter like i i think things really he suffered from that Gotcha. Because he, yeah. he was such a pioneer as far as like being the guy that used technology as it came out. You know, the use of the Fairlight. Uh, there's a great documentary on YouTube that talks about the create, you know, of security. Right. The Fairlight is what made, um, the sec- made, was a big part of the security record. Yeah. And that stuff is amazing, but I think it was a good balance between you know, it was new technology, but there was also limitations to it. And so because of the limitations, it required creativity and he was able to do what he did. Yeah. Oh, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> the Fairlight, nobody had them. They, they were really expensive. And, and uh, you know, the BBC had a Fairlight. They were really the, geared for sound design for television. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and it was the early days of sampling. You could edit a waveform with a light pencil on a monitor, and that was unheard of. I can tell you the what? What is it? Um, I think it's "Lay Your Hands on Me." There's a sound that goes ba 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 ba, and I mean it doesn't sound anything like that, but I think it was. Peter dropped a, a, a stone on a piece of, of uh, slate and and the way it bounced. And then with the fair light, the thing was, you know, if if you played up the key, when you sampled it, if you played up the keyboard, it played it faster. When you played down the keyboard, it played it slower. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have the technology that we have now where it could you could play all over the keyboard, change the pitch, but it would be the same rhythm. Right, and that that was a very good example of something that would have been very hard to do if you didn't have a Fairlight. Can you speak to some of the the tracks with no symbols? I, I, I've heard this over the years about the intention of <clears throat> putting symbols on later, but the production style of the time. I hear that. My understanding is like the production of mid, the album by Midnight Oil was that way where they recorded the drums, then they recorded the cymbals later because of they were trying to control the bleed of the different instruments from the drum set. Right. All right. Well, think about a drum kit. And so you've got a bass drum. You know what that sounds like. Mm-hmm. 
and then you have a crash cymbal. You know what that sounds like. Mm-hmm. When would you ever record those two sounds into the same microphone? I mean, it's like recording like a piccolo and a and a and a tuba into the same microphone. They they don't sound anything alike. It made sense, and, and as I remember it, and there there people have their different stories. But the one I'm going to stick to, because this is what I remember, is it was, it was basically a happy mistake. And, you know, oftentimes brilliant ideas happen because, not because they were planned, but because it just, it was a mistake that ended up that way. But we, we were getting, we had the drum set in the, in the, um, in the studio, which was a, a stone barn in a, in a place that Peter had been renting for us to rehearse in, he decided to record there. And it was a, not a huge barn, but English. So, you know, everything in English made out of stone. Right. So, and this was like a cow barn or something. So it was, it was not huge, but it was comfortable and, and it was all stone. So, um, and I think it was uh, Steve Lillywhite and, um, and Hugh Padgham was the engineering it was, Hugh Padgett is absolutely one of my favorite engineers. Um, and Lily White is one of my favorite producers. And uh, we were experimenting with compression and distortion. And, you know, we, we would get, they got this great sound on the drums, snare, toms, you know, like, you know what they sound like. Kick drums, snare drum, tom-toms. They just exploded. It was awesome. And then when you hit a cymbal, it sounded awful, you know. It was just because of the compression and the distortion. It just, it just, it, it didn't work. So that's what I remember was: let's record the drums, and then we'll overdub the cymbals. And in the end, there was really no need to put cymbals on it. They were like, in listening to it, and with the thought of going and putting some cymbal crashes, really just crashes. It's like, who needs a cymbal crash? Now, that is, that has stayed with me uh, my entire career. I mean, I didn't invent that. I didn't make that up. But I certainly appreciated what it sounded like. And I agree that you don't have to hit a cymbal crash, you know, after every fill or, or you know, leading into um, – a chorus from a verse or a pre-chorus or a bridge. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's typical. And I think that's one of the things that makes the security record sound different is, was it the security record? I think. Well, was there, it the re- I mean, there's, the there's not yeah. much on, on melt or security, honestly. Right. The melt. Oh no, of course it was melt because that was the one that Steve and uh, Hugh did. So, um, I don't, I I don't find that I don't miss them. We didn't miss the symbols. I never thought about it. and and I heard that exact story maybe twenty five years ago. So I remember when I was preparing to talk to you, I was like, "Oh man, I got to find out if that." Did you hear it from me? I hope somebody else has knows that that that's the story. I mean, I hear things about who said they came up with Peter made up with the idea. Peter hates symbols. Collins <laughs> uh, came up with the idea. Some blah blah blah, you know. It's like I, I I don't know. I don't remember any of that. And I I love Phil Collins. I really do love him. But 
I don't ever, ever, I never remember me trying to emulate something that Phil did or some approach. I mean, Phil is a much better drummer than I am when yeah. it comes to chops and, you know, that, that whole sort of semi-fusion thing. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think, I don't know. I, I, that's what I remember. And I think it's a great, I, I love that. It's funny because it's kind of bitten me in the ass when I go out and I work on other people's records and they can't, they can't not hear cymbal, a cymbal crash. It's like, it just doesn't sound right to them unless there's a cymbal crash leading into the chorus or it coming out of the film. One of the things I wanted to ask you was how much your experience, all the 10 years, nine or 10 years that you were with Peter, coming from a listening background of Motown, Stax, you know, stuff from like that you had mentioned, and your love of American black music, then to go to a completely different genre. And that's that's kind of where I know you from, and then I know you from Indigo Girls and some other things like that. Yeah, uh, throughout the years, and and I want to and I want to ask some questions about that. I guess the question is, how much did your time with Peter influence your playing as a drummer, as a musician, as a producer? Uh, there's, there is it, there. It's I don't know what the word is incalculable uncalculable it's one of those it, it's so it, it had a profound effect on me like beyond you know because i was in orleans and then orleans the lead guy in orleans quit and a month later i was offered to play with this english singer who i'd never heard of who was in a band that i had never heard of and Somebody gave me this a cassette of Peter's first solo record, and I listened to it. And let me tell you something. There's no Stax Motown or Memphis soul anywhere to be found on that record. Right. I mean, this like English, froggy, semi like classical, ethnic, you know, the influences. There's no funk. Let's put it that way. There's nothing funky about that record. And I thought, this is the weirdest music. It was so off the wall. Um, but it, I looked at it. It was a challenge. And it was going. I was going to get to go to England, which I'd never been there before. It was a job. My band had just broken up. I was very sad. And, and like within no time, I went from Orleans to playing with Peter Gabriel. Now, I think, I mean, more upon the Burgermeister and excuse me and waiting for the big one you know waiting for the big one was a slow blues but it wasn't a black blues it was a white blues and <laughs> um and i'm not knocking anything because i love that record and i think the songs are brilliant so um so and i think what peter really liked about me was that my background was r&b soul not like phil collins not you know, chop, lots of chops, jazz, fusion. I think he liked that. Ironically, in the end, what Peter ended up doing was 
the record so was had you know that was the funk i mean i have the touch which is on security that's a really funky ass song track um and i thought that was going to really break blow it wide open for him but but it didn't and uh but you know big time and sledgehammer you know um digging in the dirt steam those were all horns they were you know they were nothing like what he had been doing they were they were like motown songs in fact he always talked about doing a, an album of motown covers but if you do a record of covers you're not going to make the kind of money that you're going to make if you write your own motown songs which is what he did and you know it worked out very well for him yeah so but but peter that it, he changed my whole approach to how to make music, how to hear me. I mean, I, I it was, he was as a big an influence as my brother was on me, and and just you know looking up to my brother and following what he was doing and listening to how he played the drums and his approach. Peter's thing, and believe me, it was nothing like I had been used to doing. But but um, it just was one of those things that really just happened to work out. We, we ended up working together for about 10 years. I, I would argue that his plan, his music and, and all the great drummers that have worked with him and especially including yourself is just has influenced so many of us in the community, the drumming community. I mean, I, I have a, I have a funny story. I, I wanted to tell you briefly, I probably 15, 16 years ago, I've lived in Nashville for 20 years and uh, there was a singer-songwriter I was working with, and she was a big Indigo Girls fan, but, you know, influenced by Sheryl Crow and uh, Joni Mitchell. And so when we'd work on, I recorded a record with her, and we would do some a little bit of touring. We always talked about some of the stuff that you had done, especially on, like, uh, 1200 Curfews and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> and some of the other, other tracks that you had done, Rites of Passage and things like that. Yeah. That I knew you had worked with with Peter. I knew I, knew I, I wasn't uh, n- n- not as much as I am now, but I mean I knew that the stuff that you had done, the early stuff, and and sort of the ethnic percussion. But I didn't know your background as much. But it was what we always referred to you, you know, as as like, okay, what would Jerry do in this? And so anyway, so she was getting ready to, <laughs> she was getting ready to move out of town, uh, leave Nashville, and she wrote me this really sweet letter after working with her for a few years. And in the letter, she wrote, "Thank you for channeling your inner Jerry Murata for me." Oh, that's hysterical. Yeah, and I, you know, it's 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 funny. I'm not to not to jump off the 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 Peter Gabriel subject, but I mean, just on that twelve hundred curfews, like I was just I was listening to that because I'm kind of going back. Man, I had that double CD, and I wore that thing out. Um, but going back and listening to a lot of the stuff this last couple of weeks, uh, preparing to talk to you, just reminded me of where that came from. So I'm kind of like projecting here my own personal story and and how much I've listened to you over the years. But like are you on track 3 thin line? Do you remember that? Do you remember the listing? It's it almost sounds like a rough mix of a session. Oh, we we you know, I brought I'd have to go and look. Uh-huh. But I brought like a a little recording rig out on the road with me. Maybe that's I, it. It's the Maydats and it was Thin Line was 
Who's the guy? It was a guy that was opening for the Indigo Girls. Um, he, who wrote the song. It was his song. Oh, okay. And I can't remember his name all right right off the top of my head. I think they mentioned his name in the yeah. But it's you you're talking and and that must have been it cuz it starts off with two live tracks uh that sound amazing and then it sounds like you guys were in a studio or in a small room. I thought maybe it was like a radio station. But those grooves that thing that song to me that just like defines this personality, this characteristic drumming that you have that seemed like it came from that time of playing with Peter to now playing with this group and these other things. Because I'm like, yeah, because that would not be the groove or most of us would go, you know, two and four on the snare drum, kick drum. You know, it's like we'd find this more standard rock groove. And yet that's not what it was. It was thinking, and I'm like, is that Latin? Is it world beat? Where is that coming from? What is yeah. that? I'd have to listen to it. I don't even remember. But that's re- that's one example of many. I don't remember what we played on it, but uh, I, but I, I, re- I do remember the song. There are so many on there. I mean, there are so many uh, that, that I, I recall. And, and I hear some, I mean, going all the way to... You know, the bucket list record that you guys do, especially that first track. I hear these things, and I hear you using toms, I guess, more of of creating, using toms to create a pattern, a groove, than using them to fill. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'll tell you, if you look, the the song Galileo. Yes. That's a good example of... um, of me incorporating, a, I, you know, a, a, I, I, I came up with a, with a, a groove pattern that incorporated Tom's ironically, this is a, this is a good one. This is something I love. I, 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 I really like to share is, you know, I played, have played in a band, a bar band here in Woodstock since I moved up here um, called uncle funk. And it, it's, it's, it was, you know, before me, it was Tico Torres, the drummer from Bon Jovi. Yeah. And, and Bobby Masano, the guitar player who lived up here, they were in a band called like Frankie and the Knockouts, you know, that had a record. And then Tico went on to be in Bon Jovi. And then, but Bobby, great guitar player. Um, Tony Levin was playing bass. Um, Howie Brown played keyboards. And Joe Biesmer, who's a local guy who's a, an upholsterer, he was the lead singer and guitar player very good great band but we would play hey pocky way and and i kind of you know reinvented what i thought was i reinvented that second line new orleans thing of course no one on the planet has ever said to me hey man you reinvented that that whole new orleans thing that's awesome but people have many people have said to me that is an amazing drum part on that song. And then I have had people say to me that you can't play the drums. You don't know how to play drums. <laughs> like that drum beat sounds, it's not like drumming. It's, it's off the wall. You should, lear- you should learn how to play drums the way, the way drums are supposed <laughs> to be played. I mean, not people being nasty, but I know. I know that's what they're thinking. 
So uh, real, real quick, uh, not to interrupt you, but you remind me of, of a friend of mine that I interviewed early on in this podcast, Paul Griffith, wonderful creative drummer. He has, he goes, a friend of mine says to me, he goes, Paul, when I listen to you play, some days it sounds like you've been playing for 30 years, and some days it sounds like you've been playing for 30 minutes. Yeah. You know what? That's, and I'm, I hope he took that as a compliment. Because, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I don't want to, pl- I'm not after like, uh, I don't need to play like, you know, Steve Gadd or Dave Weckl or, or, um, Danny Cal, you know, those guys that are fucking just great. I mean, but I don't need to play like them. I, I like, I, I, even with music and bands, I'm, I'm sort of sick of music, you know, like that the same kind of thing done over and over again in the same way with the same instrumentation and the same basic ideas, you know? Yeah. I love when I hear something that's it's either kids or, or you know that don't know any better, and they just they just come up with these ideas and they're just trailblazing. That appeals to me. I I, I love when things fall apart. When things where they I love mistakes. You know, I, I love I love every anything that sort of sounds unusual or atypical or n- not not typical of of you know your basic songs and i sort of have tried to do yeah i agree and in general there's only so much so much of that you can do and people have to be receptive to it in, in the case of the indigo girls i was very lucky cuz they were receptive well their producer especially peter collins um he was very receptive to that stuff so oh wow yeah i guess yeah. i didn't realize that he had done that Peter produced a couple of Indigo Girl records. Okay. One and maybe Swamp Ophelia. We did a couple of records together. Good, really good ones. Yeah. No, I... Uh, I he's a, I don't know if he still lives in Nashville, but he's an Englishman. But he he, he did eventually move to Nashville. Right. Uh, yeah, I did and, some work with an artist that was that he had produced. Yeah, I don't know if he's still down there. I, I haven't spoken to him in, in a while, but mm-hmm. you know, the business... The music business doesn't. There's not really room for guys like Peter Collins anymore. You know, there's there, 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 the, there's no budget for a guy like me. if you're to be a producer, you got to do everything. You know, you have to have your own studio. You have to have be able, you know have samples and loops and keep you know do your thing and and so you can make you know because you have to be able to make a record for for no money. I mean, guys like Peter Collins and you know those kinds of guys. Their advance, uh, to just their advance alone to to produce a record, would be up in the seventy five thousand dollar range. Mm-hmm. Advance against royalties, and that's I'm talking, you know, um, you know, that's for them to be in the studio for two or three months, and uh, and then their royalties, you know, they got paid royalties as well. Uh, this nowadays, most bands don't have a budget of seventy five thousand dollars to make a record, right? You know, people are making records for anywhere from fifteen thousand to fifty thousand. You know, which is a fifty is a big budget. As for now, my lady, I got a plan no one can doubt. How about we go dancing? Is there anything that you would could speak to as far as? someone developing their own personality in playing well i mean i i i would encourage it 
you know, I, I would encourage it big time. You know, it's easier to do that if you can, if you can, you know, kind of connect with sort of like-minded other players, a couple of other guys that are, that are in the head, same headspace. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I encourage that. I mean, if you want to, I've never wanted to be a session drummer and I don't consider myself one. I'm just a guy who does what he does, you know, and I've never, I've never, I, 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 you know, I, I, I didn't, I, I moved out of New York in the mid eighties when if I'd stayed in New York, I probably would have been doing a lot of sessions and what I didn't want to do that. That that I'm, I've always wanted to be, just be in a band. It's funny. It's <laughs> very hard to be in a band, and it's fi- I find it harder and harder as time goes by to be in a band. I I I, I um it, it, to get a band together is really complicated. Um, getting people to stick it out and be into it, and not make any money, and you know, I I moved up to Woodstock in '86. To start a band, I started a band. A couple of English guys. One of them was recommended to me by Peter Gabriel, the the lead singer writer, and we 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 moved. We all moved up to Woodstock. Two guys came from England. One bass player was um, had been in a band called Men at Work. It was a bass player. Right. He moved to Woodstock and a guitar player um, lived in New York, and we all moved up to Woodstock and. We started this band, Island of Men. For we did that for about two and a half, three years. But you know, and that was great. I mean, I love being. I just always want to be in a band. And you have so many projects going on. I, I imagine that if you can get just a few to fire on a couple cylinders, and you get. I mean, it, it just seems to me that in order to stay busy to work full time, you have to have many plates spinning. You have to have what? Many many plates spinning. Absolutely, because none of them pay. Pay, you know. I mean, if you're in Dave Matthews, the Dave Matthews band, you don't have to do another gig, right? If you're if you're uh, Max Weinberg, you don't have to do another gig. I mean, you're like multi multi millionaire from doing that gig, you know. Yeah. Um, but there aren't that many of those gigs. And I appreciate the idea of being in a band because you can develop things, you can develop sound, you can develop a show, you can develop camaraderie. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I do enjoy that, but I also enjoy the challenge of working with different people. Uh, you know, luckily being in Nashville, it affords me that opportunity to work with many different people throughout the week. Especially. Oh yeah, I love that. I love that too. Mm-hmm. I just can't do too much of it because. I get burned out, you know, on the singer songwriter session thing, especially I would think in Nashville, it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, you're doing a lot. There's, let's say there's three songs, you know, there used to be three songs. (laughs) Um, and I don't even know what to make of country music anymore. It's just pop. It's turned into pop music. Yes. And good. I mean, I, you know, Nashville's just, you know, totally, it's like a like you know, it's, it's like being on the moon, you know. <laughs> I, you know. There are people with studios and rhythm sections, and there's a you can go in and cut an entire record in one day. You yeah. know, 
Yeah. And, and, and they're good. They're, they're, they all play good. It's the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not, that doesn't interest me. Have you recorded uh, down here? A, a couple of times, not uh, a lot. Yeah. I did a record with a woman named Beth Nielsen Chapman um, that Peter Collins produced. We did that down there. And I did, I did a, an Indigo, two Indigo Girls records there. Oh, cool. And we recorded them in Nashville. Did you record the song Nashville with the Indigo Girls? Um, Do you remember that? Damn. What record was it on? Was it Ophelia? I think it was. I think you know, I, I'm sorry, but that's 90s, 2000. It's like over 20 years ago. <laughs> I know, man. Come on. <laughs> I, don't rem- I don't remember. I think I did it. I, I, but... It's it's just trivial, just a trivial question, just because it's 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 a it's a dark take on Nashville. It's it's yeah. an interesting song. Oh yeah, yeah, probably Amy wrote it. Amy must have. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a dark song. I, oh yeah, Amy wrote it. <laughs> I did rites of passage. I did Swampophilia, I think was the next one. Um, Come on now, social. I don't know. If, I don't know if I did that or not. I okay. and we did the te- uh, twelve hundred curfews. Uh, yeah, I really don't, I don't know, I don't remember after that. You know, I used to get hired quite a bit to play drums on band records where the drummer wasn't quite good enough. Mm-hmm. And I, I, whether I got credited or not, I was fine. I, I did a lot of that. I never do that. I haven't done that in years because with technology, computer pro tools, beat detective, you know, you can make anybody sound solid. Right. You know, you can, you can make anybody sound solid. And back in the eighties, you know, I was solid. You know, you didn't have, there were no, there was no computer program to make a drummer hit playing drums sound like his time was spot on, like mine was. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is, you know, that you could take technology can, you know, you could, anybody could sit at a drum kit and just fumble around. And in a computer, you could you could manipulate that to make it sound like something. Yeah, I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> no, all right, you can edit. But, but you know, what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I you know, but no people won't do it. But it it is true. I mean, I yeah, think right, right, right. Whether or not it's what you're going to want is oh, another story. Want to get weird, unusual, or interesting? Then that's that's one way. That's one way to do it. Right. Uh, what's coming up this this rest of this year for you? Well, I'm I'm playing in a band called Little Days. The, the, I'm going to lay out for you um, all the things I'm doing. Okay. The band called Little Days. It's Jorgen Carlson, who plays bass in Government Mule, and and his wife Mimi, and they're awesome. They have a great record. I we did about a week's worth of shows in uh, maybe it was in June or July. And we're going to do a bunch of shows again in October. Um, 
I'm going up to Albany on Thursday to go sit in with Government Mule. They're doing a show with Warren Haynes, who who I, who I love, and um, and Danny Lewis is the keyboard player. He's a good friend of mine. He lives he lives here near near Woodstock, and and I I only met him over the summer. But Matt Epps, the drummer in Government Mule, yeah, I mean he's awesome. Mm-hmm. He's an awesome guy, and he's a great drummer, and uh, and I'm so fortunate to have kind of crossed paths with those guys, and then. And then Warren has invited me to play, basically come and play anytime I want. Uh, and I have a band called um, Annie and the Hedonists, which is like a swing band. Um, and we do a lot of swing dances. And, and we do a lot of old school music from the early 1900s through the 20s and 30s, like old Louis Armstrong, but not Hello, Dolly, like – you know, there was way more to Louis Armstrong than Hello, Dolly. Yeah. Um, like Laverne Baker and, um, you know, just a like an unbelievable, um, unbelievable group of uh, uh, musicians in the band. And then songs written by people, you know, um, just just incredible. The 30s and 40s. Um, protest songs about unions not you know uh you know just we play incredible it's incredible music i love playing with those guys that's fun uh, there's the security project of course i have a record out that i i don't know if you know about but it's called soul redemption with flav martin it's flav martin jerry Murata. yes um, yeah I, I don't know if you've heard that or anything about it i, I have you know, yeah that's really a great record. I produced that. It sounds good. I'm doing a lot of pro- more production work, but carefully producing people. I just don't. I just don't want to produce because I have nothing better to do and I need the money. I, I never do anything like for those reasons. So I only want to produce stuff if I feel like I can bring something to the table. And I'm working. I'm producing a record by a, an artist named Sarah Parada. And um, she's she's phenomenal uh, singer songwriter plays piano and and it's taken about two years to find where the where the where the way to make this record where this record how this record should be made and what it should sound like because I've heard her earlier records and they're very good but I didn't really think they suited her so that's another thing I mean I'm a bit of a pain when it comes to that. but the good news is. I don't try to force myself on anybody. I just, I let them know what I think and what I want to do. And then they have to decide whether they want to go along with that or not. But, but, but it sounds like you're creating a work environment that when you wake up in the morning, you're like, I'm ready to go. This is going to be fun. This is going to be great. Yeah, true. (laughs) I also, this year I'm going to try maybe by the end of the year to have, to put out some music of my own. Um, I've, I, I also have a group called The Fragile Fate, and uh, we have a record out called Lilium Ocean, which is kind of ambient, sort of an ambient thing. It's awesome. With Eric Taylor and uh, Rupert Greenall, who's a keyboard player in a band called The Fix. Right. So I'm doing that, and I'm always hopeful that we'll do more bucket list gigs eventually. Um, 
that's always fun. That was an awesome experience. And uh, I have a band called Reeling in the Years, which we just do the music of Steely Dan. Yeah, talk to your brother Rick about that. Big band, you know, mm -hmm. and so fun. Because nowadays, because of money, everybody's doing like duos and trios, which is fun. But this is fun because there's like 10 or 12 people in that band. And, and you know, it's we ain't doing it for the money, although we, we do really well. I mean, people love that music and they love the band. So I'm doing this reeling thing. It's, it's just an awesome group of people. Incredible. Um, incredible players and singers. And I get to sing in that as well. as I get to sing in um, in the Security Project as well. I sing a couple of of, of back in New York City, I sing that and on the air. I sing a couple of of the songs when we do them. And and for people that are interested in this, there's there's you have Facebook page pages for a lot of this stuff. Oh, Facebook, Instagram. Yeah. You know, uh, I have a website. You know, we have a Murata Brothers website. Oh, you know, of course, I can't not mention doing the Murata Brothers thing with my brother, which has just been awesome. This is the third year. We just did our last gig last Wednesday uh, on Martha's Vineyard because we only ever play on Martha's Vineyard, but because uh, that's where Rick is all summer long. Yeah. Um. And so we're, you know, I have high hopes for the future of the Murata Brothers. Um. You know, that's we have an awesome band in us, and really, the centerpiece of that band is a singer named Joanne Cassidy, and she is just absolutely world class lives on Martha's Vineyard. You know, she's like as good a singer as I've ever worked with. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of, there's other things. I mean, I've got so many, you know, I've got the dreamland thing going. I'm doing other productions and playing on, you know, playing on people's records, you know, I'm, you know, it's good. I, I balance it out. That's important for me to just to keep a, a good balance. But it sounds like you're doing things that you want to do. Things that I want to do, and I can't do any one thing over and over again. Otherwise, I get bored. So I like to break it up. Yeah. It sounds like a blast, man. And yeah. You know, I, uh, yeah, I'm, it, it is. And I do, like, people send me tracks occasionally to put drums on and, and percussion. I do, I do some of that. Um, but I don't really solicit it. I mean, more and more I see guys advertising for, you know, I'll do drums on your on your record, and, which is great. I mean, that's a great thing, you know, to, you know, work at home and and uh, it, it's cost effective for the artist. So, I, I, you know, I basically I do pretty much uh, just about anything. I love playing live. That's always, you know, my number one. Yeah, my number one. Passion is lot, lot playing live music. Live, that's that's what it's all about for me. But you do so well in the studio too. So <laughs> yeah, and I love I like being in the studio. Yeah, but you know the studio sometimes, you know there's oh, there's too much talking, you know about discussion. I don't love discussing these things. I like to play. <laughs> you play. You do your thing. I'll do mine. <laughs> Leave me alone. Let me just do my. I'll play drums. I'll be the drummer, and you be the bass player, and you be the guitar player, and you be the piano player. Like, and everybody do your thing and do the best you can. But and so with lives, 
you know, you can do what you're doing and there's no stopping to, to discuss it and try it a different way. That's part, that's part of what I love about doing the live things. Like, <laughs> well, I, we appreciate you uh, discussing, <laughs> doing nothing but discussing <laughs> all this yeah. stuff. Yeah, with, no, that's I like talking about. It. And Jerry, you just you continue to be an inspiration. Um, I've we've Zach and I have interviewed so many different drummers, and uh, I hit upon some of those that before I even thought about having a podcast, I they they the 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 drumming became a part of of my you know my playing, and and you are one of those guys. Oh, awesome! Thank you. Yeah, I really. All right, well. You know, keep in touch. Let me know if there's anything else I can do. Jerry, thank you so much for doing this. Got- have a have a great evening, and uh, I'll be in touch. All right, Matt. Talk to you soon, man. Bye bye. Uh, speaking of bucket lists, speaking with Jerry is uh, has been on my bucket list for for very long. I couldn't have anticipated having a, a chance to have a conversation with Jerry. Uh, before I ever started this podcast, but I've been listening to him for many, many, many decades, and he's influenced me and inspired my playing. He was a super nice guy and offered to talk a lot longer than we had time. So I so appreciate that, and it's it's very humbling to have this conversation. There's some uh, things coming up in October on the 23rd here in Nashville. We're going to have a live recording at Drum Paradise, and it's going to be all about finances. We've got a special guest coming in who's a financial expert, and uh, the guys at Drum Paradise are helping us put that together. October 23rd, I believe that's a Wednesday. We tried to pick a time that worked well for everyone. Uh, If you are in the Nashville area, October 23rd at Drum Paradise at the Drum Pad, where we had our 200th episode, we're going to have a big live taping all about finances. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Luis Newsom. Also, I've got some announcements coming up soon about a contest we're running in the month of October. Sabian is offering a symbol as a prize to give away to one of y'all who participate in this, and more information is coming. So we thank you so much for listening, and please keep in touch, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.